Do all these things for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as you turn to 1 Peter, we're going to wrap up our walk through 1 Peter next Sunday, and then we're going to jump into our next non-Pauline epistle or the next book of the Bible that Paul didn't write. Um, uh, after that, we spent the last couple of years walking through Hebrews and then James and the 1 Peter, and then we'll jump into 1 John uh, later this month. But first, we need to wrap up this letter from Peter, a letter written to a bunch of Gentile Christians that were scattered around modern-day Turkey. Um, if you can imagine an area about the size of the southwestern United States from Texas to California and just having churches scattered and letters, this letter being delivered on, uh, by hand uh, to each of the churches to be read, to encourage uh, these believers to address general issues that were facing believers in that part of the world in the first century, but having universal truths that apply to all believers today. So we're not just reading an ancient document, we're, we're reading the living word of God that speaks to us today in the same way it spoke to them in the first century. And mainly how they, former pagans, were supposed to live out the reality of their new life in Christ among pagan people they used to spend time sinning with. In other words, we're different now because of Christ, so what does this new life look like in this pagan culture? How How do we show our distinctiveness among this pagan culture that we just used to blend in with? Or as we've tried to describe it during this series, how do we live a life so radically distinct that our life demands a gospel explanation? The only reason we do what we do is because we've been radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus. And it's fitting that Peter would be the author of this letter, someone who had also been radically changed by the gospel from being coming a fisherman to becoming a fisher of men, an early church leader. Peter, one of the three closest disciples of Jesus, the primary leader among them when the church was born in Acts 2. Peter, known for his boldness, the only disciple who asked Jesus to let him walk in the water, and when Jesus said, come, he actually got out of the boat and did it. Peter, with the boldness to proclaim, of course, Jesus, who are you? You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ. The boldness to declare this essential truth to who we are as Christians and who the church is yet also bold enough to tell Jesus, you don't really need to die on the cross. To which Jesus replied, get behind me, Satan. Peter would end up facing off against Satan later when Jesus told his disciples around the table that they were gathered for the Lord's Supper, for their last meal together, before his arrest, before his crucifixion. After Jesus says, Peter, Satan has uh, asked permission to sift you as wheat. Jesus tells Peter, but when you return, encourage the brothers. I'm praying for you. And Peter would face this most public humiliation by denying Jesus three times in fear that he was not a follower of Jesus, in fact, while Jesus was being illegally tried in the next room. Peter was afraid for his own life and three times denied knowing Jesus because he didn't want to face the same trouble. All this sifting of Peter by Satan himself that Peter was failing. And so it's only fitting for Peter to be inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the two verses that we're focused on today. Verse 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world first we want to focus on the reality of this enemy of ours and then turn our focus to how we respond 
to our enemy. So first, the reality. Believing that we have an adversary who really exists and is a personal, supernatural entity with a name and an agenda set against God and God's people is pretty unique among Christians. And it really can establish how you view the Bible. Satan, Lucifer, the devil, the prince of the power of the air, the strong man, the god of this world, the great red red dragon, the serpent. And in this passage and some others, a lion prowling and seeking to devour. Like he is real. He is real. This is not, this is figurative language. He's not literally a lion, but it's figurative language about a real entity. This supernatural being called Satan and all those other names. He was Lucifer, the angel, close to God sometime in creation past. He was created to serve God, but was so close to the worship God was receiving that he began to desire it for himself. And this act of rebellion got him and a third of the other angels cast out of heaven to the rest of created creation, the earth, to be Satan and his demons. And the next time we see Satan, he's in the form of a serpent in the garden with Adam and Eve, our first parents. Again, figurative language about a literal person. Our enemy, our adversary, would love for us to downplay his existence and not take him literal. Sure, evil doesn't have a name. Evil is just faceless. It's like yin and yang. It's like the force and the dark side of the force. Or Satan is a cartoonish character that we see in movies and television shows and cartoons. Of course, the problem with that is the Bible. The Bible doesn't speak of him or speak of evil as nameless or faceless. Specifically, Jesus doesn't. And Jesus speaks more about his existence and faces off with the devil and his demons more than anyone else. So to dismiss this literal description of our enemy is us making the decision that we can pick and choose which parts of the Bible are true and which parts of the Bible aren't true. And the problem with that is that you become the authority over the Bible instead of letting God's word be the authority. And then you, therefore, have created your own religion, the religion of you, and what you determine is true and false. Of course, the other mistake is we make with the, uh, with the devil is we make too much of him. We treat him with greater power than he is. Like some of you might even be a little uncomfortable with me talking about him because it's kind of spooky or scary. Is something now going to happen to us? I got something in my eye all morning. I can't get this whatever it is, piece of dirt in my contact. It's just like irritate me. I'm like, of course, I'm preaching on Satan today. It's just irritate me all morning. Can't find the remote for the projector. Of course not, because we're preaching on Satan today. Things like that happen when you preach about Satan, right? He's at work in all these things. We get this almost superstitious view of Satan, making him out more than he is. And again, we go to God's word, we, found out that, we find out that while our adversary is a powerful supernatural being, he is nothing close to God and God's power. He's a created being. Therefore, he's automatically subservient to the creator. He's already been defeated. He's a defeated, wounded animal. When he shows up in the Bible, he has to ask permission from God to make the messes that he wants to make in Job's life and Peter's life. The demons were... Uh, the only beings in the ministry of Jesus who really knew who Jesus was. Every time Jesus confronted a demon, they knew. They knew who he was. And every time they did whatever Jesus commanded, they had zero power outside of what Jesus allowed them to do. 
Even the great battle of Armageddon at the end of the Bible is not really a battle if you read about it in Revelation 19. It's a slaughter. So we don't have to live in fear of Satan. He's not the boogeyman. He's not a being we can't resist. But he is, he is more than we can handle by ourselves. We're only victorious over him through the strength that God provides, not our own strength. So if you have questions about the real existence of Satan, we can talk later. But the Bible, God's word, clearly declares him to be a real being with a name and an agenda to devour those he seeks, which would be anyone and everyone. But in this context, specifically Christians. And so what does it mean for Satan to potentially devour us? Now, again, figurative language He's not a literal lion. So he can't literally eat us like a lion could, but figuratively, how could he do that level of damage to our soul? And then what does that look like in our lives? And essentially, the desire of the devil is to destroy our faith. He wants to destroy our faith in God. Destroy our trust and belief in God. That's the essence of the difference between good angels and fallen angels and between those who make it to the eternal state, heaven, and those who won't, those who will spend eternity with God and his people and those who will spend eternity separated from God and his people in eternal lostness and what the Bible describes as torment. It's do you believe or do you not believe? Do you trust or do you not trust? That's, that's more essential to who we are than even our works. We read in Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. A few verses later, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, a lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So those who have been chosen by God, those who have believed in Christ Jesus and trusted him for salvation are also those whose names are written in the book of life. It's all the same. And certainly there are tons of theological quandary and questions about how that happens and why this person, not that person, what about those who never heard? All kinds of hard questions to answer, but there are answers. But the essence it boils down to is that. And so Satan is this defeated foe that's headed for this horrible fate. And his desire is to bring as many as he can with him. How many more can you destroy? And the way to do that is to destroy faith, to hinder the spread of the gospel that gives life and sets people free. So for those who aren't part of God's family, he wants to continue to do what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 is what he's doing. In their case, the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. This is every single one of us before Christ makes us alive and opens our eyes and helps us to see. This is every single person that we know who's not following and trusting in Jesus. They're blinded by Satan to their true spiritual condition. They may be very spiritual. They may be very religious. They may be very, a good person who does a lot of good things in our culture. But if they're not made alive in Christ Jesus, they are blinded by Satan, the God of this age, their lostness. They're blind, spiritually blind. And Satan wants to keep as many people as possible from having their eyes opened and seeing and believing in Jesus. Or if that has happened to us and we have been made alive in Christ Jesus, 
He wants to keep us on the sidelines and ineffective dealing with our own sins and our own apathy and our own fleshiness. Or as we have seen in 1 Peter, he wants to level persecution or the threat of persecution against us so we will shut up and we will uh, quit spreading the gospel and we will keep it to ourselves so that it doesn't spread from culture to culture into all people groups. Satan spreads chaos and darkness, wanting to hinder the light of Christ spreading. He opposes everything good God has created. So God has created the family. Satan wants to destroy the family through redefining marriage, through systems and cycles of poverty that just repeat generation after generation and people can't ever seemingly get out, through consumerism, materialism, and greed that can also repeat itself through generations, through broken marriages and the uh, proliferation of affairs today kept secret on smart devices, through addictions and indulgences to screens and substances and uh, medications, and 10,000 other things he's trying to levy against our families to destroy our families, to destroy our marriages, to destroy our kids. He wants our homes to be in chaos. He wants them divided and broken. He wants us fighting against each other as spouses. He wants us oppressing our kids. He wants our kids hating the authority of their parents. We could go on and on thinking about all the ways that he is trying to destroy our families. God created us male and female in his image, and Satan is always working to redefine that good creation of male and female, gender roles God has spelled out in Scripture. God's established government to bring order and the sword of justice to punish evildoers, reward the righteous, and Satan is working continually to turn that into chaos in every single country under every form of government that exists so that evil flourishes and good is oppressed. Satan works through lies and accusations and slanders, getting us to replace God with us, to question God's commands more than we obey God's commands, to question the nature and character of God rather than submitting to him and following him. Satan does this work himself, but he's not God, so he's not everywhere at all times, not omnipresent. He's limited to a time and place, so he works through his demons, but he mostly works through our own sinful flesh and the world's systems that has allowed him to create, uh, that God's allowed him to create as the God of this age through all the people who are blindly following him. Ephesians 2, 1 and 3 tell us about this. That we were born dead in our sins and trespasses and we walked according to the prince of the power of the air. And as we blindly, apart from Christ, obeyed Satan, we were helping him to establish his systems and structures wherever we live, where darkness can spread and light is oppressed. As we live in this world, as Christians, we have to face this reality fighting against our flesh, fighting against the world system, fighting against Satan. As we live and enjoy the things of this world, we have to decide, are we really enjoying these things that are turning into worship to God, or are we just indulging in the things of the world like everyone else? And it's just sinful, fleshy indulgence like everybody else. We constantly have to assess, are we helping to carry out the agenda of our enemy because we're not living a distinct different life that the Bible, 1 Peter, for instance, spells out? Or are we carrying out a resistance movement 
by spreading truth and light and hope and the joy of the gospel of Jesus? Are we enjoying God's common grace that all people can enjoy? You don't have to be a Christian to enjoy a good meal, to enjoy a good concert, to enjoy a good uh, uh, movie, to enjoy your kids, to enjoy your... You don't have to be a Christian to enjoy all of that. Everyone does. There's this common grace God has, has spread throughout all creation with the intention that we would see this common grace and we would be drawn to the, the God who gave it to us. And we as Christians can use the common graces of our culture in order to proclaim the saving grace of Jesus. You think that's good? You should enjoy this with Jesus as the king of your heart. You think that meal's good? What, what about when you eat a meal and it's worship unto Jesus? It's even better. You think sex is good as a, as a married couple or non-married couple? You think it's enjoyable? Well, what if you enjoy sex as God intended for us to enjoy it within the confines of marriage and it becomes worship under Jesus? Are we using these things to point people to a saving grace of Christ? Or are we just indulging like everyone else? So that's the reality of our enemy. Secondly, how do we respond to our enemy? The seemingly growing darkness and decay of our culture and society that everyone is feeling is certainly part of our enemy's agenda to work against God and his people to spread death and destruction and chaos, to increase hopelessness, to increase sinful destruction, to cause people to find their ultimate joy in the temporary or the sinful, to worship anything and everything other than our Father in heaven. Like every single idol our sinful flesh creates, your football team, your fantasy football team, your spouse, your kids, your job, your wealth and financial security, your accomplishments, your achievements, your grades, your career, all good things that we turn into ultimate things. And now we're, we're allowing Satan to have too much influence in our life. We're giving him a foothold because we're worshiping idols instead of our Father in heaven. Power, control, wealth, greed. Satan is constantly at work to spread this agenda. But we have a way to respond. It's never hopeless. We're never defeated. He is the defeated one. So how do we respond? Three ways in this passage. First, uh, very clearly in verse 8, be sober-minded, be alert. Now, the opposite of sober-minded is being intoxicated or to be drunk. If you're intoxicated, if you're drunk, you're impaired. Slow reacting, unable to think clearly, foggy-headed. And the opposite of being alert is being asleep. Something Peter would have personal experience with as Jesus prayed in the garden and he and the disciples could not stay alert, but instead were asleep. So we're asleep, our guard is down. We're not aware. And we become susceptible, susceptible to the attacks of our enemy. Instead, we're exhorted to be clear-minded and on guard. One of my favorite shows over the years is a show by the name of Survivor Man. Uh, Les Stroud, this Canadian, would be dropped off in the middle of nowhere and given just enough survival supplies to make it for seven days in some uh, Arctic wilderness, desert wilderness, jungle, swamp, who knows, just somewhere in the world, all by himself. He doesn't have a camera crew with him, not throwing shade on bear, I'm just saying he's all by himself. And if he can survive seven days, make it to this certain place, then they'll pick him up, and he survived. In one particular episode, he's in these jungles. I can't remember what country. And uh, all of a sudden, he realizes he's being tracked by a jaguar. And he's filming himself 
walking through the jungle to this safe camp that these locals had. Hopefully he can make it there before the jaguar pounces. And he, it's, it's really crazy. He's walking. You can hear the jaguar growling. He stops. He's like, <gasps> okay, got to keep going. I got to keep going. I got to keep going. It's terrifying. He was very, like even he gets in the camp, the jaguar is prowling around the outside of the camp, just purring and growling, like looking for someone to literally devour. As he's walking through the jungle, Les is very sober-minded and alert because the presence of the enemy is very real. We have to believe our enemy exists and is actively working through our flesh, through his demons, through the world system to devour our faith and the faith of others. Like if we dismiss this as Christian hocus-pocus, our fear-mongering, We're no longer sober-minded, clear-minded. We're no longer alert. Christian, brother and sister, you have an enemy that wants to destroy your marriage and is actively at work every single day to destroy your marriage, to drive a wedge between you and your spouse, to build walls, to harbor resentment, to open doors to secrecy and hidden sins. If there was a lion in your backyard trying to break into your house to attack your family, how would you react? Well, it's already in your house because it's in us. It's in the world system and influences that are already in our homes. And I'm not suggesting like some Christians have done in the past, throw away your TVs, they're a tool of the devil. I'm not suggesting that. Some Christians believe the best way to deal with this is to isolate from the world systems and culture that's out there. Others, like most of the people here at the crossing, believe we need to infiltrate the world systems with the light of the gospel, take it to the dark places that need light. But we we need to consider ways in which we embrace and indulge in our culture and ways in which we are on guard and alert against our enemies. Students, the enemy desires to destroy your faith so you'll compromise your convictions, so you'll indulge in sin. Parents, there is a lion that wants to devour your kids. Singles, there is a lion that wants to destroy you, to feed you lies that you're less than because you're single, and you can't be as effectively used for the kingdom of God because you're single. It's a lie that you you might allow to beat yourself down and keep yourself from fully serving Christ Jesus until you are saved through marriage. That's a lie. Maybe he wants you to remain single and give you that gift so that you're freed up to make him known throughout the world. Let's, so let's start there just by believing there is an enemy after us and responding appropriately. Okay, I'm not going to stick my head in the sand. I'm not going to lay down. I'm not going to run and hide in fear. I'm going to not pretend this isn't real. I'm going to be on guard, making plans to resist. Secondly, resist with faith. I'm going to fight back. And that's what we see in verse 9, where he says, Resist him firm in the faith. So I'm sober-minded, alert. I know he's real. I know he's coming after me. Secondly, I resist him. James even tells us in James 4, 7, when we resist the devil, he flees from us. So this isn't passive, but it's also not maybe what you're thinking. Like resisting firm in the faith, we we resist by believing and obeying God. Like it's not us. Look how amazing we are with our resisting. No, it's 
I'm running to God. I'm trusting in Him. I'm, I'm depending on Him. I'm believing Him. I'm obeying His commands. I'm, I'm trusting that the way He wants me to live life is the best way for my good. That's how I'm resisting. God said it. I believe it, and I want to do it. Obeying because obedience is the fruit of genuine belief. So you could even say genuinely believing and trusting in God is how we resist. Do you believe and trust God in His Word, or will you believe the lies of the enemy? who says God's way is not the best way. Here's a better way. It's more fun. It's more exciting. It's more adventurous. It gives you more what you want. Satan's attack in the garden was, did God really say? God said this. Did he really say that? Let's think about that, Eve and Adam, who's standing there doing nothing. You can't believe God. He has an agenda. He doesn't want what's good for you. He doesn't want you to know the truth about good and evil. He's keeping something from you. He knows that if you eat of this fruit, you'll become like him, and he doesn't want you to be like him. Satan's attack against Jesus in the wilderness, Matthew 4, Luke 4. Jesus, don't trust your father. Don't believe him. Do it this way. You're hungry. You haven't eaten in 40 days. You've got all this power. No one's around. Just turn those stones to bread. No one will know. Worship me, and I'll give you the kings of the world. No one will see that. You don't need to go through all that suffering and abandonment on the cross. That's awful. Why would you do that? Do it this way instead. And Jesus resisted. Jesus did what Adam and Eve didn't do. He resisted all three temptations with God's truth against Satan's lies. He believed God. Paul gives us more insight into what this battle looks like in Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So our struggle is really not with other people. I know it seems like it is, but it's not. But it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, verse 14, with truth like a belt around your waist and righteousness like armor on your chest and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. Notice a few things about that passage. We stand in God's strength, not our own strength. So don't turn this passage into God making us some type of avenger for him. And now we're going to take on the devil and use our spiritual superpowers to do whatever we want to do. No, we only have the strength that God gives us and we stand in him. We resist. Look at all the weapons through truth, belief, the gospel of peace, trust, prayer, the sword of the spirit, the word of God, obeying his commands. Like we don't fight against the devil barking him around like he's a dog making much of ourselves, but we stand and resist through trusting our Father on our knees, prayerful dependence, obeying His commands, spreading His gospel. When our enemy attacks, if few of us will ever face Satan himself, if any of us are even an actual demon, possible, especially if you go overseas, 
most of us are battles with our flesh and the world system. But when the temptation comes to not submit to God, to not trust Him, to not believe Him, not obey Him, it's a battle in the mind. And in that, that moment, we have this opportunity to trust God or, or trust ourselves. And sometimes the fight and struggle to get there looks a lot more like, I believe, help my unbelief, than some kind of resounding victory. There, there are victories. There are, there are moments where you're faced with a clear choice. Will I sin or will I not sin? In that moment, you choose truth and righteousness. And that should be celebrated. Anytime you do that, you should be sharing that with your community of believers. That should be like a party. By the grace of God, you said yes to what is good and what is right. But a lot of times, it might feel more like, I believe, help my unbelief. But understand, Christian, that's also a great victory for you to profess that and confess that like the man who was asking for his son to be healed after Jesus came off the Mount of Transfiguration. If we are confessing, I believe, but help my unbelief, we're actually being more honest about where we are probably most of the time. Yeah, there is a part of me that really believes. And there is a part of me that is always struggling to believe. Because the temptation is alluring. It is enticing. It's even enjoyable for a while. Because obedience does seem hard. I, do, I really do feel like I'm going against the grain of other people around me. It's hard to rock the boat. It's hard to swim upstream. Because the wounds are so fresh, whatever your wounds might be, because the scars are so recent, because the fear is so real. I'm struggling to get there. So, so dear brother, sister, like, be honest with God about that. Yes, there is a part of me that really does believe, Jesus, you are who you say you are. Jesus, you really have done everything necessary for me to have life abundant now and life eternal. But if I'm honest, in parts of my soul, I struggle to believe. I struggle to trust that this way really is best. And Jesus can use that. Like Jesus can work there. Jesus can strengthen that weak faith with his strength, and it's enough to hold on. It's enough to make it through the rest of the hour, the rest of the afternoon, the rest of the day. It's enough to wake you up in the morning and still believe. Belief enough to stay firm in the faith and keep resisting the enemy's desire, desire to devour your faith. Our weakness and our honesty about our weakness is really what makes this last part of the resistance so important. So we're sober-minded alert, we're resisting him firm in our faith, and then Thirdly, we find courage in community. Verse 9, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. We find courage in community. Encouragement is literally courage being put inside of us. And we need courage to be put in us. And we can find that from knowing something really important. We're not alone. We're not alone. Every single person in this room struggles in ways that we all struggle. If you watch nature documentaries, you know how lions like to hunt. Me and Landon were talking about this recently, following a herd until they find a weak one. Yeah, a weak one. But even more than a weak one, one that's alone. 
Because even a weak one, like a newborn calf, can be surrounded by strong ones. And the lion's like, I ain't fooling with that. But you get one alone, even a strong one can be taken down by a lion and their pride. These believers need to know that their brothers and sisters throughout the world, at that time the Roman Empire, today we could say most of the world, they are suffering in the same way. Like you're not alone. It's amazing how that puts courage inside of us. When life is hard, when suffering is present, when the enemy is attacking, when it doesn't feel like we're winning. winning. It's amazing how much courage can be put inside of us to have a brother or sister come alongside of us and say, it's okay, I'm with you. We're going to grieve together through this. We're going to weep together through this. And we're also going to rejoice together through this. And you don't have to walk alone. I'm with you. Like we're literally doing the work of the Spirit of God. When we come alongside someone, a brother or sister, who's going through these seasons of temptation or suffering. One book that's been studied in the past by the elders of the crossing, and Land and I are actually walking through it right now. It's called Dangerous Calling. It's about the inherent dangers of, of being a pastor. Paul David Tripp, who's been a pastor for a long time, wrote this. Um, and he, he talks in one chapter about the danger uh, for pastors to live life without true, genuine community. So I want to read a short excerpt. I think I put it on the screen. Paul says, I was raised in the Jesus and me privatized, individualized Christianity, the fundamentalism of the 60s and 70s. The closest our church got to an actual functioning ministry-oriented body of Christ was a rare pastoral visit and the Wednesday night prayer meeting. No one knew my father and mother, I mean, really knew them. No one had a clue what was going on in our home. No one helped my father to see through the blindness that allowed him to live a double life of skill, deception, and duplicity. No one knew how troubled my mother was beneath her encyclopedic knowledge of Scripture. No one knew. We were a Christian family in active participation in a vibrant church, but what we were involved in lacked one of the primary and essential ingredients of a healthy New Testament Christianity, a trained, mobilized, and functioning body of Christ. For much of my Christian life and a portion of my ministry, I had no idea that my walk with God was a community project. I had no idea that the Christianity of the New Testament is distinctly relational from beginning to end. I understood none of the dangers inherent in attempting to live the Christian life on my own. But I have now come to understand that I need others in my life. I now know that I need to commit myself to living an intentional, intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. I now know it's my job to seek this community out, to invite people to interrupt my private conversation, and to say things to me I couldn't or wouldn't say to myself. I have realized how much I need warning and encouragement, rebuke, correction, protection, grace, and love. I now see myself as connected to others, not because I have made the choice, but because of the wise design of the one who is the head of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ. I cannot allow myself to think that I am smarter than him. I cannot allow myself to think that I am stronger than I am. I cannot assign to myself a level of maturity that I do not have. I cannot begin to believe that I am able to live outside of God's normal means of spiritual growth and be okay. Since as one who has remaining sin inside of him still, it is right to say that the greatest danger in my life exists inside of me and not outside of me. Then wouldn't it also be the height of na na naivety and arrogance to think that I would be okay left to myself? 
We need one another. It's essential to resisting our enemy. We cannot go alone because we have times when we are weak and we need others to preach the gospel to us. And then we have times when we are strong and we can preach the gospel to others. And that often doesn't factor into the equation, does it? When we're weighing whether or not we should be in community or not in community. Usually it's, I'm fine, I'm good. I don't really need anybody right now. If you're so good, why don't you let God use you to help others then? There's never an excuse to not be engaged in community. The Crossing Church is a church built around deep, deep community with one another. Like it's, it's so highly relational, it scares some people away. Like literally, we've had people come and like, mm, that's too much. I'd like to just go back and be anonymous. I'd like to just go over here and just check the box. We have never wanted to be a check-the-box church. Show up here, check the box, disappear, show up next time, check the box. We, we want to be highly relational, discipling one another, living out life in the community of God's people as he's intended us to be. We need each other if we're going to be sober-minded, alert, resisting our enemy, staying firm in the faith. So let's join the resistance together. Let's do this together. And the reason this is all possible, so this is a verse from our next book study, 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Because the one we follow has done the work, he has destroyed the devil and his work. We don't win the victory because we win the victory. We win because Jesus has won. Every single week we come together and worship him and we share in this meal that points us to that reality. So let's do that again. Father, I'm so thankful that you have done everything necessary through your son Jesus to destroy, crush the head of the serpent to eternally, finally, and fully humiliate him, disarm him, take away all of his true power. When you cried out, it is finished on the cross. That's it. He's done. And though we fail often, because of your victory, we never utterly fail. Ever. Thank you, Jesus. We want to praise you and make much of you and not make much of Satan. Because he is a defeated foe. But he is real and he still causes a lot of problems. And so help us to be obedient to this passage as we live this out in community this week. I pray for my f brothers and sisters who are gathered here that wherever they're at in their battle with sin, Satan, the flesh, the world systems, that you would strengthen and encourage us to get up off the mat, to get back in the fight, to have enough faith to keep going, knowing that our enough faith is enough for you to work with. And if there's anyone here who's still blinded by the enemy and they can't see their reality of Jesus and their need, the reality of sin and their need of Jesus as their Savior. Take off the blinders today, King Jesus. Open their eyes and help them to see who you are and what you have done to give them life. 
and enable them to believe and come alive in Christ Jesus. Do that today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.